Just as we've been looking at this, um, this series over these past weeks, it's the concluding, um, concluding talk, really, on, the, on this whole series that we've been working through. I don't think we've ever really mentioned the idea that we are talking about signs of life, um, but that there is an important aspect, a distinction that we're making which grows the idea of life. And that is that we all have a spiritual dimension to us. We all have that. There are many people, in fact, there are an increasing number of people in our generation today who are tapping into their spiritual dimension. I was chatting to um, a guy who I'm spending a little bit of time with over these weeks. We're doing some work with the Prince's Trust, and uh, he's um, spearheading the idea of chaplaincy work into all of the uh, groups working with kids in the Prince's Trust, and he took them on a labyrinth walk. Uh, There's a labyrinth in Nostal Priory, just encouraging them to just stop for a moment and think at a deeper level. Now, I understand absolutely completely why in our history we have moved away from the idea of things like labyrinths and all of those kind of things to engage with the spiritual dimension. Um, The danger is that we can lose sight of the fact, therefore, that we do have a spiritual dimension. We do have that. He's encouraging the kids to stop, to, to spend for a moment... A short bit of time where the phone was not bleeping in a way that they would immediately respond to. To stop and not speak. To stop, to be silent, to think, to ponder, to consider some of the big questions of life and our own existence. That those dimensions of our engaging with our inner being, which I think uh, our generation is rushing so quickly, we can't stop. When was the last time you stopped and thought and pondered? Psalm 1 encourages us to do that. It encourages us to stop and to ponder, to meditate the word of God. It doesn't say, look, your spiritual dimension is a a dimension that you can direct, you can design. It can go off in any direction that you want it to as long as you think about your inner being. That's one of the dangers of these uh, exercises in spirituality. What the Bible says is direct your spiritual thinking. According to God's word, according to the, uh, to the Bible, according to thinking in terms of my being in the light of God and his revelation to us. To meditate on the word of God. But to do that, we need to stop. We need to stop. And to realize that we are spiritual people. We have a spiritual life. We desire the physical. Yes, we do. We desire the physical. We desire, as we're going to see it uh, during these coming weeks, just coming up. Friday's the opening ceremony, isn't it? The Olympics is kicking off. We have a desire written into us for physical domination. I read a really interesting article this past week thinking about 
competitiveness in the Christian context. There is an aspect in which competition strives and drives humanity towards more of what it can achieve. What can human beings actually achieve? There's a sense in which that is at least part of what we're called to do as human beings. God says right at the very beginning, go and subdue the world. Understand how, how, how much you can stretch yourselves, what you are tra- to drive towards. How can you can pursue the objectives of humanity? But as Eric Liddell understood when he was running, he understood, I want to stretch myself, I want to push myself, but I want to do that sole deo gloria, only to the glory of God. It means that I want to push myself with a purpose which is not me, but which is outside of me, to point to the one who created me. That was the objective of our human drive forward, right at the very beginning of the Bible. So we have a dimension which is physical, but we also have a dimension which is spiritual. We understand the issues of emotional emotional justice and injustice and I mean that emotional justice and injustice the emotional experience of real justice and real injustice what happens to us in the face of that so the question that we ask as we come to this section for the final time is what is real spiritual life We've got three C's this afternoon. Uh, The first one is conflict. First C that we have is conflict. Look at verse 17. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. Okay, so... At least an understanding of our spiritual dimension. What spiritual life is as somebody who is committed to being a follower of Jesus Christ. And therefore somebody who is living according to the spirit and living in the spirit. Is a life of conflict. A life of conflict which is expressed that there are things that we want which are contrary to the things that God wants. We are in a life of conflict. They are in conflict with each other. So that you are not to do whatever you want. That is such... Sometimes we find in the Bible, don't we, just one little sentence which jumps out and screams at us, or at least it should. You, he says, looking into the mirror, (laughs) you are not to do whatever you want. You are not to. It's not an option. It's not a, it would be good if you didn't pursue only what you want. It's not a, you know, if you want to really start to build on this Christian life, you need to think about, it's straight out. You are not to do whatever you want. In other words, you need and I need to hear that my natural tendency, what I want, is very often likely to be in conflict with what God would want. 
And when I realise that, when I understand that, when I understand that even the best of my desires can be tainted with a motive and an inclination which is in conflict with God, we realise the significance. You are not to do whatever you want. Rather, you are to live according to the Spirit. You are to live life in the Spirit. Verse 22, which is a bit further down. Next page, if we can just quickly turn to that. We'll come back to that section in a minute. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. As we've worked through each one of those, what we've realized, hopefully, uh, if you haven't been able to uh, be with us for each of those, they're all online. You can download them from the website download the whole series, catch up with each one of them, what you will see is that they are, uh, in, in, in a sense, they are driving us to defeat a natural tendency. They're driving us to defeat despair, anxiety, anger, self-pity, self-sufficiency, skepticism, brutality, indulgence. In other words, my tendency, my tendency is towards all of those. But the power of God working in me drives me in a different direction. It shapes me to a way which is in conflict with what I would want to be, but is taking me to a better place. I have a tendency, you have a tendency, to self-pity and self-sufficiency. That sounds interesting, doesn't it? Because they sound already as if they're in conflict with each other. Actually, they can walk hand in hand very comfortably. Uh, Self-pity and self-sufficiency. I have a tendency towards those and others. And yet aspects of the Spirit of God working in me drives me away from that tendency. It shapes me, it steers me in a different direction. So our conflict is an ongoing conflict. Secondly, we need to realize that there is a subconscious conflict and there is a conscious conflict. There is a subconscious conflict. If we think about the subconscious conflict, we realize that we are unaware of some of the directions that we are heading. We just end up there. We're not even conscious that we are standing in rebellion against God. It's just a natural tendency which drives us in a particular direction. We do things naturally against the order in which God has created us. We have a natural tendency to jealousy. We have now, there is a sense in which jealousy can in a few occasions, uh, be a good thing. God is described as a jealous God. But let's use another word that goes hand in hand with jealousy. We have a natural tendency towards covetousness. Self-pity comes out of that. Self-pity says, what I've got isn't enough. I pity myself. I should have what X, Y, Z has got. There should be more in my life than what I have. I end up in a place of self-pity, and that has started subconsciously because I've just looked out there and seen what else is going on in this world compared to me. My, my covetousness of things and people 
of relationships and health that other people have, I covet. And subconsciously, that has taken me down a line. We don't even realize that. The Bible describes the eye as the window of the heart. In other words, it kind of allows us to see in. It allows also, it allows what is out there to go in. To to reveal the dimensions of our heart, which takes us precisely where Jesus warns us of the reality of who we are. There is a dimension of us which is subconscious. And we end up in conflict with the circumstances that arise out of it. We end up finding ourselves in bitter and resentful conversations. Why, why am I here? Why, why do you, why do I end up in a conversation which is filled, of bit, filled with bitterness and resentment or, or bad-temperedness? Or frustration or anger. Why is it that those conversations are taking place in our lives? Why is it? It might not be anything to do with the person that I'm speaking to. I might be perfectly happy with the person that I'm speaking to. In fact, the people who are the closest to us, the people who are the ones who we most love, are very often the ones who are on the receiving end of the outcome of the spiral down, which is our inner conflicts and our our problems, our jealousies, our angers, our frustrations, our self-pity. They bear the outcome. Do we realize that we live like that? A subconscious behavioral pattern that is the result of a whole series of events. And people end up the victims of our problem in the heart. People who we love dearly end up with the short-tempered response or the frustration. That's, that's not... Is that just me? Is it just me? I don't think so. I don't think it's just me. I think we all know what that is like, don't we? Subconscious. However, there can also be the conscious conflict. Those moments in time where we deliberately know that we are doing what we know we ought not to do. We know that. The deliberate stand that we take against what we know to be right. So the subconscious conflict, there's conscious conflict. In in the book to the Romans, Paul chapter 2, Paul describes not just for those who are believers in Jesus, but for everybody, he describes conscious conflict like this. He says, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. In other words, he's saying, they haven't got the law of God. So when he used the word Gentiles, he's talking about people who have not been brought up in the Jewish heritage with the Bible and God's law, if you like, as the way of living. And yet we know that there are some people who don't know anything about that, Paul is saying, who live in accordance with that and they know that it's right. Their hearts tell them that that is right, 
even though they've never seen it. They know that it's right. He goes on to say, their consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. In other words, he's saying there is a sense in which our consciences, whether we've heard the message of Jesus or not, whether we've heard the demands that God places on us or not, there is a sense in which our conscience tells us right from wrong. We know that. And there are times, and you know and I know, when we listen to our conscience and we say, I don't care. I want to shut you up. I want to get rid of you. I want to only do what I want to do. That is a deliberate, conscious conflict that is going on. That's how we live. Now we are in an even more challenging place because we hear that the Spirit of God working amongst us so that his demands are clear to us means that it's not just about conscience. It's not just about conscience. We don't need just to rely on conscience. In fact, we have the perfect Jesus Christ making demands of us. And you know and I know that there are many times in our life where we stand in stark conflict with Jesus and we say, I don't want to know. I don't want to live according to your way. I want to live according to my way. In other words, we can have subconscious and conscious conflict. And we are in a position where we are facing that as believers, if we are believers. I know that you are right. I know that your law is good but I want to do my own thing. You are not to do that, this verse says. Though we go back to verse 16, 17. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the Spirit of the flesh, for the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But... If you are led by the Spirit, you are no longer, or you are not, under the law. If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. What does that mean? Something like this. It means that those of us who have come to faith in Jesus Christ who are living according to faith in him, are not condemned by the demands of the law. We are living in the spirit and we are freed and liberated in the spirit. Further on, a bit further down, we read, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. They have been crucified. Those desires have been crucified. I don't know about you, but it doesn't feel much like they're crucified to me at times, does it? It feels like they're doing very well, those passions and desires. So we're going to come to that. Conflict. 
Second C, contentment. Contentment. In the face of conflict, is our response to fight and to strive and to be in conflict disappointed, challenged, angry conflict. Well, actually, if we just think about verse 22 and 23, how would you sum them up? If you were, if you were thinking, how can I describe what life in the Spirit is actually like? What would it be like, in other words, to live like this all the time? Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If you and I lived like that every minute of every day, I think you could describe our lives as deeply content. Deeply content. Content. Not now, now we've got to work through what does that mean to be deeply content? In the 1980s, before the ban on tobacco advertising on TV, there was a series of adverts, some of you will remember them, by Hamlet. Happiness is a cigar called Hamlet. And various characters and various situations. Okay, I've just now identified the congregation. Some of you are smiling. Some of you are looking like, what's Hamlet? Um, It's a cigar. It used to be advertised on TV. But various people in different characters would be going through traumas in life. The one that really springs out to me is the shot, quite appropriate given it's the open today. The shot across the green and you'd see somebody in the bunker on the far side of the green and you get the swish of the club and sand would fly up and then you get another swish of the club and sand would fly up and it's like, it reminded me of my bunker shots. And, uh, and then eventually the, the music would the drift in, barks, air on a G-string, the settling music would drift in and smoke would waft up from inside the bunker and uh, happiness is a cigar called Hamlet. Is that contentment? I think it's really important. Is Christian contentment a bit like the Hamlet advert where we're sort of detached from the reality of life and we drift into this separate existence with Jesus that means that everything is happy and nice? No, it is not that. It is not that. It is not a separation because after all, in that particular example, the ball is still in the sand. It's not on the green. You know, the issue hasn't been resolved and it's not being resolved because we're smoking a cigar, a Hamlet moment instead. Is the Christian faith some sort of Hamlet moment of spirituality where I drift off from all of the issues in life and focus on something else? No, no, it is not. 
Hopefully what at least we've been able to do over these past nine weeks is see that contentment in Jesus is not separated from the issues of life. It is a deeper level of contentment in the issues of life. In the issues of life. It says that when the wheel has fallen off, I still find a deeper level of joy and love and contentment and satisfaction and patience and all of those attributes of what it is to be in Jesus even when it is all kicking off. Now, I think that this is one of the most challenging aspects of Christian life in the 21st century. For us to be people who are content because we live in a generation that isn't content. We live in a generation that is looking for something and it still hasn't found what it's looking for, but it is striving and it's pushing and it is discontent. And we imbibe the spirit of discontent. How do we beat the spirit of discontent? Not by fighting against it, but rather by finding that there is a contentment, a deeper level of contentment in Jesus, in relationship with him. So that no matter what happens in life, no matter what the disruptions, no matter what the challenges, no matter what the things are that are going to cause me to be angry or to drift into self-pity or self-sufficiency or self-indulgence or scepticism or brutality, I am drawn away from that. What is your touch point? We all have them. What is your touch point? Health? Family relationships, job. What when the clouds of crisis wave over that? This says that life in the spirit means that I am carried along. I am carried when I cannot do it myself. I am carried and find a deeper level of contentment in Jesus. In other words, I find that there is hope against hope. It's a picture, an illustration that I've used on a number of occasions. I'll use it again. There was a couple who were really very, very close, very friendly with their neighbours, got on really well. And they were desperate for their neighbours to come to the same faith that they had in Jesus. They loved them. It was a great thing that they loved their neighbours. Over the conversations, over various, you know, conversations over meals and all the rest of it, they got to realise that this family were absolutely committed to the security of their careers. Security of their careers. And they looked on and they saw if, if that fell apart, they would fall apart. That's their God. They're putting all of their hope in that God. The God of career. That is their security. That's what a God is, by the way. A God is something which we place our hope and our security in. Which is your God, in other words. And they said their God is that career. And so they prayed that God would help their, fam their friends to understand that. 
the end result of which was that the Christian family went over the next 18 months through the most just crisis time. He lost his job. Various other issues transpired in the family. It was absolute carnage. They moved from a place of security in their work to a place of complete insecurity. The Christian family, those who believed in Jesus. After two years, so 18 months of carnage, two years later, their next door neighbours in conversation said, Can, I, I need to, we need to understand something. How did you get through this past two years? What do you mean? Well, we've watched you. We've seen what's happened in your life. And as we look at what's happened in your life, we realize that if it happened in our life, we would be finished. We would be goners. We, we probably wouldn't still be married. We probably wouldn't. One of us would have the kids. It would be absolute chaos. It would be, we would fall apart. You know, the, 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 husband, the other husband said, to be honest, I think I would probably be out on the streets. I would not be able to cope. I would be an alcoholic on the streets. That's how I see where I would be. And yet you are where you are. How is it? And they realized, actually, what was shining out, what was shining out was a contentment in Jesus so that when the crises of life absolutely washed in, and they were feeling, this family were feeling as if, I don't know whether we can keep going. I don't know whether we can keep going. This wasn't easy for them. It wasn't as though they were sat there saying, oh, this is great, marvelous. We've got a hope in Jesus. Everything will be fine. We'll be cool. We're going to heaven after all. They were going through the mill. It was dreadful. And yet they saw... Their neighbors saw that there was something deeper. There was a foundation that was deeper. A foundation which is rooted in the fruit of the Spirit. Which says that when the crisis comes, I've got something deeper, more secure, way more secure. I had a great illustration this past week. Tim Keller uh, illustrating um, spiritual security. So it's a bit like an anchor, and uh, we can have an anchor in a boat, we can throw it over the side, but if we don't let the rope go deep enough so that it actually finds something secure in the bottom, the anchor can drift around in the water and we can still drift all over the place. It's just hanging there mid-water. Mid Unless we actually let enough rope out so that we allow the anchor to go deep, deep, we will not find contentment. And I would say that there are many of us as believers in Jesus Christ who are saying, I, I want contentment. I'll throw the anchor out, but I'll keep hold of it. Just so I know the anchor is still there. You know, if I feel the weight, I know that the anchor is still there. Your anchor is drifting mid-water. Let go and allow the anchor to see, sink into the ground below otherwise you will drift you will contentment how can we find that level of contentment final c confidence confidence a confidence not in me 
but a confidence in what is written here. We've already read it. Verse 24 says, verse 23 says, against such things there is no law. In other words, there is a law of God which in the light of the acts of the flesh condemns us and there is no law of God to condemn us against a life in the spirit. We're not condemned. In other words, we are freed and liberated to live according to the life that he has actually designed for us. The law is there to challenge and to condemn the life that we ought not to live. That's the purpose of the law. It is to say this is how you are not to be. Therefore, by definition, there can't be a law that says against this life. It's, by definition, it's the life that we should live because the purpose of the law is to condemn and to challenge. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We've crucified the flesh. That's such a powerful, evocative phrase, isn't it? Paul doesn't say we have got rid of the flesh. He says we have crucified the flesh. In Christ Jesus, we have crucified the flesh. What does that mean for these Galatian believers who had never seen Jesus? It means exactly the same for them as it means for you and for me. It means there is a sense in which that by faith in Jesus, it is as though our flesh and desires have been nailed to the cross with him. In Christ Jesus. That's what it says. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh. The connection with the crucifixion of Jesus and the crucifixion of our flesh. It's there. It's nailed to the cross. What happened at the cross? What happened at the cross? What is this? Christ Jesus and the cross. It's what happens to the guilty. That's what the cross is about. It's about what happens to the guilty. The guilty die like that. Essentially is the element, uh, uh, at least part of the, the drift of the idea of the cross right the way through the Bible. The cross is right the way through the Bible. But it's seen at the point where Jesus dies. And that's what happens to the guilty. They die on the cross. And that means that if my flesh is nailed to the cross, my passions and desires are nailed to the cross with Jesus. It means they're dead over there. Content. It means that the guilt has been dealt with. Guilt has been assuaged. We feel guilty about all sorts of things. In fact, I googled guilt assuaged. 
just out of interest to see what would come up if he googled guilt assuaged. Tell you what mostly comes up. It's about feeling not guilty about all of your issues around uh, greenhouse gases and green issues and whether you're driving a great big car with loads of fuel being burnt every mile and, and what damage you're doing to the environment and all of that kind of thing. And I think that we need to care for this world. I'm not saying that those issues are not important, but I tell you what, if our only idea of guilt assuaged, according to Google, is whether we're on the green side of green or the red side of green, we have got a huge problem because we live as guilty people and we have a means to deal with that guilt and yet we don't. And the great news is that our guilt nailed to the cross of Jesus means that the issue is dealt with. Now, didn't we say earlier on that there's a conflict going on. <laughs> How can there be a conflict going on if my flesh is nailed to the cross? It, doesn't that mean it's dead already? Isn't it dead if it's nailed to the cross and yet I've still got this conflict going on? Paul says he's still got this conflict going on in Romans. This section says that there is still a conflict going on. So what's happening? Why is it that this conflict still feels as though it is raging? The beauty of the message of the Bible is that we can have an eternal view, a big picture view, even though we are living in the moment. The big picture view is this, that when Jesus was nailed to the cross, sin was eternally dealt with. It died then. Satan was defeated then. Everything that we see in this world is just the death throes, the final writhing agonies, the final vitriolic attacks of the dead enemy. You've seen it in some of the great stories, how you know, Sinbad defeats the great monster, but it carries on thrashing and all the rest of it at him. It carries on trying to do damage. It's dead, but it's still trying to hurt him. That's what it is like. My flesh is dead on the cross, and I'm fighting the death throes now. So, what does it say in conclusion? It says this, since we live by the Spirit, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Keep in step. In other words, walk as you are. Walk as the person that you are. Are you a believer in Jesus Christ? Then live in those steps. Live in those steps. Do it. Day by day. How do we do that? Actually, Psalm 1 is really helpful. <laughs> Meditate on the word of God. Meditate on the law of God. Fill your mind with promises. 
Fill your mind. Fill your, do, do practical things. Write promises down. Put them in front of you where you work. Just put a one line, a promise, which deals with the issue that you will deal with. On the top of your computer screen, just put a promise. If, that, if this is a challenge, put a promise. A promise which says uh, that my sin is dealt with. A challenge which says my eyes will not dwell on iniquity. Remind ourselves with little tangible aspect. I was chatting to somebody months ago. Uh, and we were talking about one of the great things about one of these wedding rings is it's a constant reminder. That's at least part of what it is. You know, for, for a period of time, that person, they actually wore something to remind themselves of the love of Jesus for them. The fact that they are a believer. Physical reminder so that when they were going through those massive challenges of doubt, when they were going through those massive challenges of doubt, they remembered physically I remember that I remember I remember that who I am I'm a believer in Jesus Christ I am bought by the blood of Jesus Christ walk in the steps walk in the pathway do this live by the spirit keep in step with the spirit keep in step do you remember when you were a kid closing with this one remember when you were a kid three-legged race do you remember that three-legged race? What a great opportunity for broken bones and all the rest of it that was. That was fantastic. At Wick, me, a, a mate of mine, uh, we were about the same height when we were growing up. We had about the same length of leg. We tied our feet together and we could absolutely destroy everybody because we were in step. We were in step with each other. Same length of leg. Foot stride was exactly the same. We were never all over the place. Keeping step with the spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. Because if we don't, we trip over and we end up all over the place.